Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. In the town of Rosebud, Texas, on March 21st, 1946, John Allen and Addie McDuff gave birth to their second youngest child, Kenneth Allen McDuff. John Allen was a lucrative concrete businessman who became more prosperous during the abrupt rise of construction in Texas during the 1960s. People called Addie McDuff Pistol Packin' Mama ever since Kenneth's older brother, Lonnie, was kicked off the bus and she intimidated the bus driver with a pistol while threatening him. Kenneth was spoiled by his whole family, but especially by his mother, Addie. He would go on to attend Rosebud High School, where he preyed on the so-called weaker, vulnerable kids, bullying them constantly. However, that was brought to an end when he attempted to bully the wrong kid, Tommy Sammons. Tommy was well-liked, physically fit, and Kenneth may have been a big boy with a loud mouth, but he was lacking actual brute strength compared to Tommy. Kenneth decided he would pick a fight with Tommy, but when he failed to come out of the fight as the victor, it took a toll on his pride, and he dropped out of school. His father, John Allen, gladly gave his pampered son a job at his business where Kenneth would do physical labor. Kenneth began his criminal acts when he was only 18 years old. It began in 1964 when he went to the Texas counties of Bell, Falls, and Millam, raiding and stealing from others so frequently that he was eventually caught. Kenneth would be convicted of 12 counts of burglary and attempted burglary. He was given 12 four-year term sentences, even though Kenneth was charged and sentenced to long-term imprisonment, as he was supposed to serve 12 four-year terms in prison back-to-back, he was paroled the very next year. Not long after he was paroled, he got into a physical altercation, finding himself behind bars yet again. He wasn't locked up for long, and would continue living a life of crime. Around July of 1966, Kenneth, who was only 20 years old at the time, met 19-year-old Roy Dale Green, and they became buddies rather quickly. Roy was not the sharpest or the strongest, and unfortunately for Roy, he was also very impressionable. Over the course of their one-month friendship, they would go out for beers and cruise around nearby Texas counties together, as they did. Kenneth would always talk about picking up girls, rape, and violence. Roy shrugged him off and never took him seriously. August 6th, the two poured concrete for John Allen McDuff. When they were finished for the day, they drove around to Fort Worth and the plans took a turn. 17-year-old Robert Brand and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Edna Louise Sullivan, were hanging out with Robert's cousin, Marcus Dunham, who was 15. 
Robert had parked his car on a baseball field and the teenagers were in the car, talking, laughing, and enjoying their night in Everman, Texas. They could have never imagined this would turn into the worst and last night of their young lives. He and Roy parked a little over 100 yards away from where they watched her and the two boys like a hawk. Before the three teenagers had time to process what was even happening, Kenneth had his 38 revolver pointed at the young group of friends, yelling at them to get out of their car and into the trunk of the vehicle. Realizing the severity of the situation they found themselves in, the three teens complied and did as they were told while facing down the barrel of Kenneth's revolver. Kenneth would then get into the teen's vehicle, sliding behind the steering wheel of that vehicle. The two vehicles would drive off with Roy driving Kenneth's Dodge Coronet, trailing behind Kenneth as he drove the victim's vehicle down the highway and into a field where it was pitch black outside. Kenneth demanded that Edna get out of the trunk. As she did, he ordered Roy to take her and put her in the trunk of his own Dodge. As Roy recalled that night, he said Kenneth was saying he would have to knock him off as he took his revolver, blasting six bullets into the trunk of the car as Robert and Mark screamed and begged for their lives to be spared. Roy claims Kenneth told him to go wipe down Robert's car to get rid of any fingerprints that may have been left behind. As Edna Louise Sullivan was still in the trunk of Kenneth's car, she had heard the screams and gunshots, and at that moment, she could feel the movement of the vehicle now driving down the road. Her fear would have been palpable while she was trapped in the back of that vehicle, and only hearing the sounds of gunshots ring out as she lay stuck and afraid while her friends were gunned down within earshot. Edna Louise felt the car stop. Kenneth and Roy grabbed her out of the trunk and brutally raped her over and over again. Kenneth told Roy to give him something to strangle her with, and Roy unbuckled his belt, took it off, and handed it over to Kenneth. But Kenneth didn't want Roy's belt. He had something else in mind instead. Kenneth took a three-foot-long broomstick in his car that he had Roy retrieve. Once the broomstick was handed to Kenneth, he would then go on to brutally sexually assault Edna Louise with the broomstick. After assaulting her one more time, Kenneth then got on top of the young woman's chest as she looked at her rapist and soon-to-be killer in the face. He took the broomstick and put it across her neck horizontally, ruthlessly pushing down, choking her to death, until he broke her neck. The two men, Kenneth and Roy, discarded Edna's body in a nearby bush. After all of these heinous acts, Kenneth and Roy got back into the car and drove to a gas station that was on the way to Roy's house. They were thirsty after their long summer night of cold-blooded, violent, unspeakable acts, grabbing a Coca-Cola before peacefully sleeping at Roy's own home. Kenneth dug a hole and buried his 38 revolver beside Roy's garage the next day. Later, their friend Richard Boyd let Kenneth come over and wash his car, not knowing yet what had happened the previous night. Roy Green wasn't as calculating, and his own guilt began to assuage him. He couldn't take his conscience eating away at him any longer. 
so he would confess the crimes the two young men had perpetrated the night before, telling Richard Boyd's parents what he and Kenneth had done. Richard's parents, realizing the severity of the situation, then made Roy's mother aware of what the young man had just confessed to them. Roy's mother talked him into turning himself in, and he would be the one to lead the police to Edna Louise Sullivan's body. On August 7th, the day after the murders, a fisherman discovered Robert's car in the field and peeked into the open trunk, seeing Robert and Marcus's deceased bodies inside, covered in bullets. On the 8th, Louise's body was recovered. Two months later, on October 17th, the bodies of the deceased were viewed by Tarrant County's Chief Deputy Sheriff Brown. Later that day, Robertson County's Sheriff Elliott talked to Richard Boyd. This conversation caused Sheriff Elliott to file a complaint against Roy Dale Green, who also lived in Robertson County. Roy was arrested as a material witness to a shooting in Tarrant County. Following this, Sheriff Elliott talked on the phone with Chief Deputy Sheriff Brown. Immediately after their conversation, Sheriff Elliott, in company with Falls County Sheriff Pamplin, went on the hunt for Kenneth McDuff. The two sheriffs staked out Kenneth's home, but they weren't hiding too well. Around 11 that night, when Kenneth drove up to the house, the lights of his car revealed that he was being watched by two officers. He knew these two officers, but sped away when he saw them. Kenneth refused to stop his car when Sheriff Pamplin ordered him to. The two officers began shooting at the vehicle until it came to a halt. Kenneth was handcuffed and placed under arrest. Afterward, Kenneth McDuff was transferred to a pickup truck after he was arrested. Moments later, his shot-up car was being searched. The sheriffs in charge of the pursuit, arrest, and search stated they were in possession of a warrant number for Kenneth which they had received from the Tarrant County Sheriff's Office with the guarantee that a telegraph warrant for his arrest was on the way. Roy would go on to testify against Kenneth as scared as he was to do so. He was terrified and intimidated by Kenneth. Nervously, he sat on the stand recalling everything that happened. Kenneth said he was a liar, covering for himself only in their joint crime of murdering the three young teens and brutally sexually assaulting one of them. Kenneth's own seemingly narcissistic ways led him to take the stand in his own defense. He tried to convince the jury that he didn't kill anyone at all. He was stoic and his eyes were simply empty. He blamed everything on Roy Green and said he wasn't part of any murders. On November 15, 1966, the jury debated for three hours finding Kenneth guilty for the vicious killings and he was sentenced to death, as reported by the Amarillo Globe Times newspaper. He began being called the broomstick killer. Roy received a sentence of 25 years in prison for his part in the murders and rape of Edna Louise Sullivan. You might think after Kenneth was sentenced to death in the electric chair and Roy was given a 25-year sentence that this dreadful story would be coming to a close, but you would be unfortunately wrong. 
Roy Green was out of prison by 1979, 13 years after the murders, and he was only 33 years old at the time of his release. Six years after the killings, Kenneth McDuff won two stays of execution. In 1972, the death penalty was overturned by the Supreme Court, which led to everyone on death row now having life sentences instead. Kenneth was of course one of those such prisoners. The death penalty was no longer the next step in Kenneth's incarceration. Kenneth was able to hire an attorney who gathered a lot of alleged evidence, attempting to pin all the deaths on Roy Green. This sturdy file of evidence stunned a lot of the parole board members. Kenneth thought he could entice one member of the board with money if the official would vote in his favor. Due to the attempted bribery, he was given a two-year sentence on top of his current one. Shockingly, none of that would matter in the grand scheme of things, considering the majority of the parole board agreed that Kenneth McDuff could be a contributing member of society despite the brutal slayings of three innocent teens years before. What the fuck? They granted Kenneth McDuff the ability to be eligible for parole in 1987. He was only 43 years old at the time of his parole. A large part of Kenneth's release was due to the prisons being overcrowded. By October of 1989, Kenneth McDuff, the man who had sexually assaulted a young teen and gunned down two of her friends, was now a free man shocking everyone in the community. With Kenneth living back in Rosebud, the residents were disgusted and now living in fear. People who had never owned guns before were now getting one or more for protection. People were buying extra locks and being extremely precautious. Kenneth was a belligerent racist, never afraid to show it. In July of 1990, a few young black kids were minding their business, walking down Main Street, as was Kenneth. He yelled racial slurs at them and whipped out his knife, threatening their lives. This would send Kenneth back behind the prison walls, but as seems to be the case for Kenneth McDuff, prison would not hold him for long. Due to some sources saying the prison was overcrowded, while others stated it was actually his mother, Addie, who once more came to his rescue, hiring two lawyers for over $2,000 to evaluate Kenneth's prospect of release. He was allowed to go free once more, just a few months later. Kenneth claimed he wanted to turn his life around this time. He's had chance after chance, and now he said he wanted to make money legitimately and get his life together. He enrolled at Texas State Technical College in Waco and became a cashier at a grocery store. However, after a month, he quit working and by the summer of 1991, he began to hang out in the cut, an area of Waco that was known for sex workers, drug dealers, and rough bars. Kenneth blended right into that scene rather quickly, selling and using drugs, violating his parole in every way a person possibly could. This alone should have sent him straight back to prison. But his parole officer was overloaded with work due to all the death row inmates that were released. And Kenneth was once more overlooked, going unnoticed as he indulged in booze, raped women, 
and used cocaine. He was a sexual sadist who believed women are only meant to be used and used up. The women who escaped his grasp during the violent rapes were lucky, barely making it out alive. There were at least five women who were never able to get away from this heartless beast. Brenda Thompson was a sex worker suffering from drug addiction who Kenneth abducted on October 10th, 1991. He bound her hands and took off in his vehicle, only to be stopped at a roadblock. A police officer was making his way to his vehicle when he saw a woman whose hands were bound and she was kicking the windshield screaming in terror. Kenneth realized he had been seen, and so he floored it, going around the roadblock, with police having to hurl themselves out of his way. The police chased him for a bit, but after he got away, authorities never even took the time to look into it again. That would be the last time Brenda was ever seen alive. Kenneth drove to a secluded, wooded location near US Route 84 and tortured Brenda until she took her last breath. Her eyes staring into the face of a killer who should have still been behind bars. But due to a fluke chance, he had been allowed to escape and end her life. Five days later, 17-year-old sex worker Regina Deanne Moore was last seen getting in Kenneth's truck in the spot of Waco that he liked to prowl, the cut. That night, Kenneth went to another isolated area near Texas State Highway 6, not far away from Waco, where he would use a pair of stockings to bound Regina's limbs together before he murdered her. On December 29, 1991, in South Austin, Alva Hank Worley, who was a high school dropout, and Petty Crook got together with his new booze buddy, Kenneth, and they rode together in Kenneth's car for a while. Their final destination would be driving circles around a car wash, eventually finding a reason to pull in. 28-year-old Colleen Reed was described as a petite, lovely, beloved young woman in the community with a lot of friends. She had been taking a nap that day and woke up in a panic. She realized she needed to make a run to the bank to use the ATM, a quick trip to the grocery store, and picked that night to decide to wash her car. Just as she finished soaping down her car, about to rinse it off, Kenneth leaps out of his vehicle and suddenly has Colleen by the throat, shoving her into his tan Thunderbird. She was screaming so loudly that nearby residents who were outside could tell the screams were coming from the car wash. They got to the car wash as fast as they could, but nobody was there. All they found was an abandoned soapy car. However, they notified the police that they spotted a tan Thunderbird speeding away from the car wash that night, the wrong way, down a dead-end street. Later on in 1992, Harley Worley would confess that he did rape Colleen, beat her along with Kenneth, and torched her skin with cigarettes, but did not take part in her murder. Valencia Joshua was an African-American sex worker, last seen looking for Kenneth McDuff. On February 24, 1992, Kenneth strangled her to death. He was also a bigot and a known out and proud racist. Whether that played a role in her death is uncertain. 
23-year-old Melissa Northrup was a pregnant mother of two working at the Waco Quick Pay Grocery Store. This was the same store Kenneth had worked at for a month before he quit. Melissa had recently told her boss she didn't feel safe working alone at night. She even told her mother, Brenda, that she didn't like filling the beer boxes because there wasn't any security at all, and she couldn't hear if anyone was coming in or leaving the store. Kenneth was privy to the store not having security and boasted to acquaintances that he could easily rob the food store that the pretty girl worked at and get away with it. On March 1st, 1992, Kenneth's car broke down as he was riding around looking for drugs. He broke down only 100 yards away from the quick pay and Melissa was working alone that night. Her worst fears about working the graveyard shift alone were about to become a reality. Melissa had been in constant communication with her husband throughout the night on the phone, but when he called at 4 a.m., no one picked up. He started to get anxious. He was so worried that he decided to go to the store, but there was no Melissa, and her car was gone. Brenda gets a phone call from Melissa's husband right away asking if Melissa or her car is there. Brenda told him no, she was at work. He replied, no she isn't, I am at the store right now. Melissa's not here, and her car isn't either. Police came off rather cold, saying she was likely just kidnapped and gone. There was no leads and no suspects so far. A few days went by and Kenneth McDuff's car was found at the New Road Inn, only one block away from where Melissa worked. He seemed to have vanished and was now considered a suspect in Melissa's disappearance, as well as four other women's disappearances. After all these years, it seemed that once more, the search for murderer Kenneth McDuff was on. At first, U.S. Marshals and federal agents couldn't work on the case, that is, until they hatched a plan. They were able to get an informant to say that Kenneth McDuff sold him LSD, a federal crime which allowed a state attorney to write up an affidavit and warrant for his arrest. At this time, the manhunt had started to heat up. One of Kenneth's friends from college even went to police to report that Kenneth had tried to talk him into helping him rob the food store. The Texas State Technical College's campus, all surrounding fields were scoured and every tip that came in was looked into. There were more than three other women missing who were thought to be victims of Kenneth's, but there is no evidence of that. The timelines of their disappearance, however, do add up. The authorities went to check the McDuff home, and his father, John Allen, told the officers, I don't know where he is, and you can kill him for all I care. Investigators and police said it was bizarre six weeks while hunting down Kenneth. So many people that knew him talked about how he always rambled on about murders, disposing bodies, and burying people. However, since he was a heavy drug and alcohol user, people didn't pay him any mind. Harley Worley was questioned several times over the course of the search due to being a known acquaintance of Kenneth's. He was staying at the Blooms Motel, and officers could tell Harley knew more than he was saying. He was acting very suspicious and seemed out of it. 
emotionless each visit. On one occasion, Harley was noticeably jittery and said, I think Kenneth McDuff may have hurt somebody. Then, one day, Harley couldn't keep Kenneth's secrets anymore. He called investigators and told them to come to the motel to talk. He admitted that he was with Kenneth the night he abducted Colleen Reed at the car wash four months ago. Harley confessed to the part he played, yet maintained he didn't participate in her murder. He led the investigators to the place where a lot of the torture and subsequent murder of the young woman had occurred. Right by Kenneth's house, there was a dirt road, a very isolated area where they tortured Colleen in the middle of the field. And, all of a sudden, Harley put his hands over his ears, stared at the ground, and said, Her screams were so loud, they were hurting my ears. He said it as if he could hear her cries at that very moment. He said Kenneth beat her to death. On March 25th, 1992, a college student came across a body protruding from the ground, not far from the golf course, and the hair, the police said, was not that of a white person. It was Valencia Washington who was last seen looking for Kenneth. He has never admitted to or been tried for her death. The manhunt kept growing more intense. And on April 26, 1992, a fisherman saw a decomposing body floating by. It was Melissa Northrup, who had been missing for 57 days. Melissa's mother, Brenda, had to explain to her two grandchildren that their mother would never be coming back, and it was the hardest thing she's ever had to do. U.S. Marshals contacted America's Most Wanted about Kenneth McDuff, and in May of 1992, after the segment aired, a promising lead finally came in. Gary Smith from Kansas City, Missouri, said he knew the man on America's Most Wanted, but not as Kenneth McDuff. Instead, he went by Richard Fowler. The two men had worked together at a trash company. Following this lead, on May 4th, 1992, authorities had found Richard Fowler and he had been taken into custody and fingerprinted for soliciting sex workers. They found out that Richard Fowler was in fact Kenneth McDuff, the broomstick murderer who had evaded capture for so long before. They began keeping tabs on Kenneth and followed him as he made his way to a landfill south of Kansas City. There, he was arrested and flown back to Waco, Texas. The community was happy that the monster had finally been captured, but they were rightfully angry as they waited for his arrival, screaming and crying at him as he walked inside the jail. There was no solid evidence for the murders of many of the victims. Kenneth was only tried for Melissa Northup's murder. The capital murder case was moved out of the county due to the fact he didn't think he would get a fair trial there. In February of 1993, Addie McDuff, the domineering mother who always protected her son, took the witness stand, testifying that Kenneth took her credit cards, which proved where he was the night Melissa was abducted, and it wasn't far from the food store. Two former friends also testified against him, and he was livid about it all. He was even mad at his defense attorneys, telling them they are helping the state so much they might as well go sit on their side. Harley took the stand. 
he, like Roy Green, was scared to get in front of Kenneth and speak. Another common thread linking Melissa's murder to a few of the other women's murders was the striking use of shoelaces in several of the crimes. Investigators found that shoelaces had been used to tie up a few women's hands and feet. Kenneth's defense told him not to take the stand in his own defense. But like the trial and the 1966 killings, Kenneth did anyway. He rambled on for over two hours doing what investigators and officers called making up wild fairy tales and spoke about not being in town when any of these murders happened. They said he was a murderer by occupation. The jury found him guilty of capital murder and it would have to be decided if he was going to be sentenced to death or life in prison. The verdict was death as he was being told that he would be sentenced to die by lethal injection. He showed absolutely no emotion whatsoever. In 1993, Fred Labowitz, a Dallas psychologist said, this is a guy who has no soul. There is little in the history of criminal science or the study of the criminal mind to account for Macduff's sadistic conduct. This guy goes beyond the study of human behavior. Dr. Labowitz never examined Kenneth McDuff, but based on his beliefs, after what he had learned about him, specifically his early days in the tiny town of Rosebud in Central Texas, he stated, In some people, we can find behavior antecedent in childhood, an absent father, a drunken mother, an abusive home. But it appears there were none of these. It seems his incredible lust for evil appeared spontaneously and full-blown. Kenneth McDuff was given another sentence in 1994 for the murder of Colleen Reed. He kept to his story of being innocent for years. Families wanted to know where their loved ones were. Bodies had still not been found because he said he would have to know where they were to tell anybody. This would be a job for yet another informant to take on. Not long after the informant had talked to Kenneth, he told where Regina Moore was located, and she was found in 1998, as well as Brenda Thompson. After he was made aware that if he talked, he wouldn't get any of his privileges taken away, Kenneth told where Colleen Reed's body was and went with police to show them. For over 40 hours, Kenneth talked about the murders and admitted to killing eight women, but police suspect that number to be much higher. On November 11th, 1998, Kenneth was strapped down to the gurney. The only time he had shown emotion ever was the fear that loomed in his eyes when he was being strapped down. Kenneth had no remorse at all. His last words were, I'm ready to be released. Release me. The victim's families, friends, and the community said his death was too quick, too easy compared to what he did to those innocent women. Kenneth escaped the death penalty twice, leaving prison multiple times, which led the laws in Texas to change. In the 1990s, the McDuff laws were put into place which strengthened the rules of parole. Violent parolees 
had to be monitored more strictly and more prisons were built so there would hopefully not be an issue of overcrowding again. Kenneth is buried in Captain Joe Bird Cemetery in Huntsville, Texas. This cemetery is also called Peckerwood Hill. It's a cemetery for prisoners whose families refuse to claim them. His tombstone only has his prison number on it. 999055. His date death and an X, which represents that he was executed by the state of Texas. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thank you.